Ben Shapiro. Well, thank you so much. Well, it's great to see you all. Glad that we can finally do events again. That is fun. First of all, I just want to thank Fred and Linda Allen for sponsoring this event, the FSU College Republicans, the FSU Institute of Politics, law enforcement for making sure that we can do this in safety. And uh, of course, we have to thank the protesters outside because We're always happy when our fellow Americans are exercising their First Amendment rights, even if they are incoherent. <laughs> so tonight, we're going to talk about how wokeness is destroying America. And here's the thing. A lot of members of the left are starting to realize that wokeness is destroying America, which is why, of late, you've seen some conversations about how you're not supposed to use the term wokeness, which is weird since they made it up. And so I'm fine with using the term wokeness. I intend on continuing to use that word. It is their fault that it became a poisonous word, not mine. It's because the idea is incredibly stupid. So the problem with wokeness is that, bottom line, it promulgates lies. In particular, it promulgates four sets of lies. It promulgates lies about the nature of the United States. It promulgates lies about the nature of inequality. It promulgates lies about the nature of responsibility. And finally, it promulgates lies about the nature of truth itself. So when it comes to claims about the United States, wokeness essentially claims that America is fundamentally racist and that Western civilization at root is similarly racist. In the words of critical race theory founders Richard Delgado and Gene Stefanczyk, racism is ordinary, not aberrational. It's the usual way society does business, the common everyday experience of most people of color in this country. So the basic idea, secondarily, is that because of this, Racism is embedded in all of America's institutions and that it serves particular purposes for it to be embedded in all of America's institutions. The reason the institutions were created the way they were was to embed and enshrine racism. This is the case made by the 1619 Project pseudo-historian Nicole Hannah-Jones, the anti-intellectual. She says that America was truly founded in 1619, not in 1776, because slavery, not freedom, is at the heart of everything America was, is, and presumably will be into the future. Now, both of these claims about American history, one, that America and Western civilization broadly written are just racist, and that everything about them is racist, and second, that our institutions and our, deepestly, our most deeply held principles were created in order to enshrine racism, both of those ideas are just lies. Racism as anyone who looks at the world right now could note, is present in every society ever for all time. It is just an ugly part of human nature to pretend that Western civilization, broadly speaking, that America in particular, have a monopoly on racism is both historically crazy and inaccurate today. According to Max Fisher in the Washington Post just a few years ago, there was a study. What he found is that people were most likely to embrace a racially diverse neighbor in the United Kingdom and its Anglo former colonies, namely the United States, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, and in Latin America. So all of the countries that are typically associated with Western civilization, at least Anglo-American civilization, are the least racist countries on planet Earth, not the other way around. Then there's the question as to whether the institutions of Western society and American society entrenched such racism, or whether, again, racism is endemic to human beings, endemic to human nature, and that the institutions that we enshrine and that we created actually fight back against racism. So according to the Wokes, notions like meritocracy, systems like capitalism, concepts like due process of law are in and of themselves racist. This has been a case that's actually been made by people who believe in critical race theory. All of these systems, forward racism, foment racism. Now the truth is, when I say those principles, you understand right off the top that they are not just not racist, they are effectively anti-racist. There are certain rules in American public life that have been racist, obviously. Segregation was an enforced part of American public law in many states in the United States. Slavery was legal in the United States for 80 years from the beginning of the Republic and then for 150 years before that. But to suggest that the notion of capitalism, free market capitalism, is racist is idiotic. It is not true. Free market capitalism is based in the notion that each individual was created in God's image and therefore has a right to his or her own labor and the, alien and the alienability of that labor. 
The notion of a meritocracy, that you ought to rise or fall based on your skill set, based on your hard work, is patently anti-racist because you are not using an arbitrary metric, like an immutable skin color, in order to judge whether somebody ought to benefit or not benefit. You are using something that actually benefits other people and that is not tied to race, your merit. The concept of due process of law is specifically anti-racist. Before due process of law was extended in the 14th Amendment to black Americans, this was one of the major problems in the United States. Black Americans were not entitled to due process of law under the Constitution, a fatal flaw in the original Constitution of the United States that led to the Civil War. Due process was specifically designed in order to enshrine individual rights against racism. Okay, then, wokeness makes a claim about inequality. Okay, so it makes claims about America, American history, our institutions. It also makes claims about inequality. These claims are lies. Wokeness makes a very strong claim with regard to inequality. Wokeness claims that all inequality in life is evidence of inequity. Now, this is a semantic trick. Right? You understand that they're taking the word equality, and then they're taking the word equity, and they are hoping that you noticed that a syllable just went missing there. And that when they say inequality and inequity, what you really think is, okay, well, equity is a good thing, and so if something is unequal, that means it's not equity. Okay, these words have completely different meanings. Okay, if something is unequal, this does not imply that something unfair happened. If you worked hard for your pay today, and somebody else did not work hard for their pay today, you received unequal wages. This does not mean that some deep abiding unfairness has taken place. But nonetheless, they have to make this case, that all inequality throughout society is evidence of inequity. To reach this stunningly idiotic conclusion, they employ the following argument. They begin with, all people are created equal. Not in their rights. All people are created equal. You are equal to the person sitting next to you in every conceivable way. Thus, if you are equal to the people sitting next to you in every conceivable way, any groups are equal in any conceivable way. Because again, if, if you are all exactly the same, it doesn't matter how I divvy up the room, any group is going to be the same as any other group. Thus, all disparate results between groups can only be due to either natural differences or discrimination. But it can't be natural differences because you're exactly the same as the per person sitting next to you. So it must be discrimination. Right? So that, that's the sort of idiotic syllogistic logic that's being used here. Now the problem is that pretty much every single one of these premises is false. Now unless you think that I'm exaggerating the case, that I'm just making up what the wokes say about this, they say it right out. It's not like they're hiding the ball here. Ibram X. Kendi, who for some odd reason has been hailed as some sort of intellectual giant, when the man has intellectual wattage that, if translated to electric capacity, might be able to toast a piece of bread lightly. <laughs> Ibram X. Kendi argues, quote, as an anti-racist, when I see racial disparities, I see racism. Any racial disparities, this means racism. This also means, as the Smithsonian Institute's National Museum of African American History and Culture proposes, that inequality exists and thus all racial groups struggle under white supremacy. Now, again, every single one of the premises that we just discussed is false. All people are not created equal in every single way. We are created equal in the sight of God. That means that we have individual rights before God. That does not mean that you are equal to the person sitting next to you in any sort of capacity. Maybe you are, maybe you aren't. But I would guess that in most capacities of life, you are very different than the person who is sitting next to you. You have different skill sets, you have different innate qualities, you've grown up differently, you make different choices. Secondly, if all of us are different, this means that not all groups are going to be equal. Any two groups anywhere are going to have different characteristics. If I took a line and I split this room, this half and this half, there would be different average characteristics in this half of the room versus that half of the room. That is just a statistical reality. On average, groups are different. Finally, differences between groups could be due to natural differences, i.e., if you take a group and they are very old, they're going to have natural differences with a group that's very young. So for example, if you, if you look at income statistics, very often you'll see certain groups compared to other groups in terms of income. Well, what if the average age of one group is very different than the average age of another group? That happens to be the case in the United States, by the way, between black and white. The average age of white Americans is closer to 60. The average age of black Americans is closer to 25. And what does that mean? It means that on a wealth level, you would expect older people to have more wealth. They've had a lifetime of accruing wealth. So you have to adjust for age if you actually wish to even out the stats, for example. Okay, this is true with every group. Men and women have very different innate qualities. I know I hate to break that to the left. Men and women, very different. Stuff we've known since we were small children and then had to unlearn because our college professors are largely idiots. <laughs> and it's also possible that there is different decision-making within groups. This is clearly true. 
if there are many individuals in any given group that act differently than the individuals in another group, the averages of the activity will be different. The lie that inequality is the result of inequity means that the solution will be to destroy standards. Changing testing standards, getting rid of magnet schools in places like New York because too many Asian kids are getting in. And if too many Asian kids get in, that means white supremacy. Because if there's one thing we know about white supremacy, it is very much in favor of Asian kids. <laughs> right, we have to change all the standards. In, in California, they're trying to do the same thing. They're suggesting that math standards have to change because the standards of success for math are discriminatory. I'm pretty sure the standards for math are about as objective as it gets. Right, there's a right answer in math. And we can argue with that right answer all we want, but it's not going to change the fact there is a right answer. All you're doing when you say that people of particular races are incapable of achieving the right answer is you are being as racist as David Duke would be. And yet this is exactly the case that the wokes make. There's this meme online that's been going around. There's this great comedy. There's a guy named Ryan Long in his comedy. And uh, there's this great video he does where he and his friend, one of them is woke and one of them is racist. And the wokes and the racists are exactly their best friends. They, they're sharing drinks together. They're giving each other hugs. That's exactly right. If you take all the woke arguments and you flip them on their head, it sounds exactly like something a white supremacist would, a white supremacist would say. More broadly, blaming freedom of choice for disparate group results means destroying freedom. Right? The idea that wokes give is that if we are all left to our own devices, inequality will be the result. Thus, we must restrict activity for everyone to achieve equal result. It also means substituting bad metrics of success for good ones. So, for example, as I've suggested, there's been a suggestion by the left, by the woke, that the meritocracy is bad. Now, I think the word meritocracy is a dumb word. I do. It was actually coined by a socialist in 1958 in Britain. The term meritocracy was coined in order to deride the idea that intellectual ability and hard work are more moral. They're not, right? How we're born intellectually is not of our own making, right? Some of us are born smarter, some of us are born dumber. Really, that doesn't have anything to do with moral merit. Moral merit's a very different thing. There are people who are not as smart, who are wonderful people, saintly people. There are people who are really smart, who are terrible people. Most of them are politicians. Right? This, but the reality is that if instead of meritocracy we used a term skillsocracy, it would make a lot more sense as to what our society looks like. Namely, if you have marketable skills, you will make more money. If you are more intelligent and you work really hard, you will make more money than if you are not as intelligent or if you don't work as hard, even if you are intelligent. Okay, now, the good news about that is that it has excellent externalities. The skillsocracy has externalities, right? If somebody is super innovative, they're really smart, they're really innovative, and they work hard. If we reward them, you might think they don't deserve it. You might think, well, you know, that teacher down the street who works really hard deserves it more. That may be your moral judgment. But the person who's really smart and really innovative and working hard creates externalities, like you get cheaper goods and services, better goods and services, available to more people. Right? Any system that rewards skills has excellent externalities for third parties. It's, in any society, some people are going to be rewarded and some people are, are not going to be rewarded as much. The question is, what metric do you use in order to delegate who is rewarded and who is not? Presumably, as a society, we would like to reward people such that the externalities of their activities make our lives better. That's why we reward Bill Gates for creating Windows. That's why we reward Elon Musk for making Tesla. Right? The system rewards that labor specifically because it makes a lot of people, it makes their lives better and it makes their lives easier. Okay, wokeness also tells a third lie, and that is about the nature of responsibility. So, as you would imagine, if the idea is that all inequality is the result of inequity, this means no responsibility for anyone. Wokeness lays every disparity between underperforming groups on victimization by the system. Now, that can be true. Right? This is not to deny that there have been cases in American history and that there are cases around the world right now where some groups are not performing as well as other groups because of discrimination. Of course, discrimination is a very real thing. But this cannot be an endless process of redress of grievances beyond the point where the people who sinned are now being asked to repay. Because then you end up with an endless cycle of grievances. It's one thing to say that if I hit you with my car, I ought to pay you. It's another thing to say that if I hit you with my car and that this has downstream effects that are negative for your kids, that four generations from now, my great-great-great-grandchildren should pay your great-great-great-grandchildren. If you go back far enough in history, every single person has been a member of a group that was victimized and a group that was a victimizer. Right? We all have a, a wide variety of blood types within us, check 23 in me, except for Elizabeth Warren, who's not Native American. But aside from that, <laughs> if you check 23 in me, we all have membership to various ethnic groups in various places on earth and various locations. 
in, I'm sure all of our ancestors have suffered some discrimination or other. This is not to say that all of that discrimination is the same, that it is of the same magnitude. It is to say that there is no cosmic justice that is available whereby we calculate today your fractional desserts for the blame of the past and your fractional desserts for, for what you deserve from everybody else. There is no way to do that. That is just not possible. What we can do is look to what individual decisions can we make today inside a free system that make lives better. You'll notice that when it comes to responsibility, the woke never want to talk about it because it might actually fix problems. What they want is deliberately designed not to make lives better. It's designed to ignore how you make lives better. It's designed to restructure the system. The system is bad. The system must be torn down. Never mind that the system has created more prosperity and more health and more wealth than any system in the history of humanity bar none. It has to be torn down because it is unjust, because it is inequitable. Well, the reality is that if you want to improve your life in a free country, what you need to do is start making smart and good decisions. This game that we play, where personal decisions that could improve, improve lives are ignored because we'd rather blame ancestry or blame people who don't bear the culpability for their parents or their grandparents or their great-grandparents, that game hurts everybody. We should not be teaching black children in the United States that they are inherently victimized because of slavery any more than we should be teaching Jewish kids in the United States that they are inherently victimized because of the Holocaust. Some black kids are victimized by racism today, just as some Jewish kids are victimized by anti-Semitism. There's certain racism in certain policies, presumably. Then we call out those policies together, and we name them, and we change them. But to suggest that every single kid who is born of a particular race is under the thumb of a system is a lie. It is not true. And what's more, it's incredibly damaging. It's incredibly damaging to our society. It's incredibly damaging to those kids. There's nothing more damaging than telling a kid they cannot succeed in life because the system is rigged against them. It is a lie. Okay, finally, wokeness lies about the nature of truth itself. So, truth is really uncomfortable. Right? It's really ugly. It makes people feel bad. Now, I say facts don't care about your feelings, but feelings do care about the facts. And when you tell people that certain things are just reality, they get very angry at that reality. And so we create narrative instead of acknowledging facts. We start talking about my truth. I have to express my truth. There's no such thing as your truth. There's just your opinion and the truth. That's it. Okay, but the idea of my truth has become very predominant when it comes to the woke. Right? My, my lived experience is what matters as opposed to, say, statistical data or as opposed to the fact that there might be an alternative explanation for how you perceive things in the world. Okay, well, here are some facts. Right? These are all very uncomfortable, but these are facts. Income is not primarily a function of racial group in the United States. It is mainly a function of intelligence and hard work. This is why Nigerian Americans are the most educated group in America. And Asian Americans are the highest income group in America. For a white supremacist country, we are doing a terrible job at the white supremacy. <laughs> Here are a few more facts. Races do not commit crimes at similar levels. In fact, races don't commit crimes at all. Individuals commit crimes. And those individuals can be classified theoretically by race. And those numbers might not be equivalent. People organized by race do not go to college at similar levels. They do not have children out of wedlock at similar levels. They do not study a similar number of hours. They do not have the same ages. They don't major in the same subjects. They do not get married at similar levels. None of this is racist. This is just fact. Culture and decision-making can close those gaps. We know this because these disparities have vacillated over time. Notice, by the way, I have not even named any of the races I'm talking about. Right? Because those, those numbers can change. The fact is that in the white community, the single motherhood rate used to be about 5%. Today, it's about 40% in the white community in the United States. Okay, that is a result of a culture that has been driven in the white community. Okay, those changes over time do not suggest changes in the genetic composition of white people. They suggest instead differences in behavior that are inculcated by culture. Here are some more uncomfortable facts. Men and women are different. I know this is a tough one. They are different in terms of how they are physically constructed. They respond differently to stimuli. They are biologically different. In fact, I hazard a guess to say that the propagation of the entire human species is a result of the difference between men and women. I know this is controversial stuff. <laughs> but as it turns out, if men and women are not different biological categories, it makes it extraordinarily difficult for children to be produced. There is no such thing as a menstruating man. There is no such thing as a woman with prostate cancer. These things do not exist. Anybody who tells you differently is selling you something. But if we ignore truth in favor of woke lies, we damn to isolation everyone who mentions truth, we're not going to face up to any of our real problems or solve them.
because problems demand solutions. Bitching about society doesn't demand a solution other than tearing down all the institutions, which of course isn't a solution, it's its own set of problems. So here's the bottom line. Americans hate this stuff and they are done with it. Okay, what we just saw in Virginia is a result of this. What we just saw in New Jersey is a result of this. I think that what we've seen in Florida over the past several years is a result of this. Okay, last year was the year of wokeness, in which we learned that a lot of lies about America had to be taken as truth. We had corporations pushing the idea that the police are systemically racist. We had broad talk about defunding the police. We, had, we heard that the cure for America's racial division lies in more focus on race, rather than more focus on individuals without reference to race. We learned that all of our guiding principles had to be ditched in favor of equity. And you know what? Americans hate this crap. They hate it. The ironic part is that the only people in America who don't hate this crap are college-educated white liberals. Okay, minority Americans are not into this stuff. By polling data, more black Americans wanted more police in their communities, not fewer police in their communities. There's a reason the Hispanic vote is breaking away from Democrats right now. Democrats believed that they were going to be able to double and triple down on the Obama coalition of 2012. This coalition of supposedly dispossessed people accompanied by some white liberals and this would be the going durable coalition for all time. And as it turns out, people don't like thinking of themselves primarily as members of a race. They like thinking of themselves as individuals. They like to be catered to as people who enjoy freedom. And guess what? Their priorities might mirror what they see in everyday life, not the ideas of idiots who think that the way to appeal to Latino voters is to call them Latinxes. Wokeness is going the way of the pterodactyl, and it should. It's the reason why so many people on the left are beginning to say that wokeness is radioactive, which is a good thing, because we need two parties that are not woke, not just one party. If wokeness wins, it destroys the country. If wokeness loses, maybe we find a way back. Thanks so much. Happy to take your questions. And as always, my, uh, my rule is that if you disagree with anything, it doesn't have to be on this, it can be on any topic, raise your hand, you go to the front of the line. That's what makes it fun. Thank you, Mr. Shapiro. Ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Shapiro is happy to take your questions now. If you have a question, please line up behind the green line by my colleague. When it's your turn, come stand on the green mark right here, and I'll hold the microphone for you. Please keep questions brief and respectful. After you finish your turn, please return down the aisle to the back. Wow. Okay. Hi, Ben. Uh, thanks for doing the tomahawk chop. Very epic. <laughs> Thank you. You bet. You um, know, when, when people say that that's like a, a racist thing, I have to say, if people just went to a stadium and started cheering for the Jews, you know how happy I would be? Um, so my question is very quick. Um, what is your favorite argument for God's existence and why? Okay, so my favorite argument for God's existence is that I believe in free will. Okay, the reason that I think this is an argument for God's existence is because if you believe that human beings are essentially just balls of meat wandering around aimlessly in the universe, the kind of Spinoza's stone that thinks that it was mo moving of its own accord but actually was thrown, if you believe that and you don't believe in free will, uh, then there's an internal coherence and logic to it. If you believe that you have the ability to make independent choices, that you can actually supersede your own, biolog uh, your, your own biological drives and the environment around you to any extent, even to the smallest extent, this means that you believe in something that can't actually be proved by science but that you are living every single day. And the notion that you have that will, and not only that you have that will, but that that will is capable of comprehending the universe around you, that your will is sort of, your ideas, your ability to comprehend the universe is a reflection of a reality, of an objective truth that is out there, that says to me that there is a God, that there's a common source that stands behind that objective truth and stands behind the mind that can comprehend that truth, or right? sort of a Kantian argument for the existence of God.
Why do you believe you're right about trans people given the American Psychological Association, American Medical Association, American Psychoanalytic Association, I can go on for about five more associations mm -hmm. um, that are very prominent and govern the, um, the existing like health, uh, health government or health industries within um, like the major yeah. Western countries. Um, and all of these associations have multiple thousands of doctors, sociologists, psychologists, and with PhDs in their respective fields backing the idea that sex and gender are different, effectively gaining the medical consensus for sex and gender being two different concepts, yet you have a different opinion. Okay, so sex and gender are two different concepts, but gender is tied to biology. So one of the big problems that, that you see in sort of the, the argument in favor of trans rights is this notion that gender and sex are completely separable. They're not completely separable. If they are completely separable, then this means that identifying people by their subjective gender really has no relevance as to whether they are a male or a female. Male and female are biological terms. So using terminology like male and female to describe a self-perception self of, of maleness or femaleness is sort of a bizarre way of arguing whether a thing is a man or a woman. So here's my question. It's an argument that my my friend Matt Walsh likes to make. What is a woman? Define what a woman is without reference to the word woman, please. Um, so this is actually a logical fallacy called a red herring. You're asking me a question in different or um, in order to actually challenge my question without actually No, it isn't. I'm saying that I, it really is not. I'm saying that biology, I, I'm, I'm agreeing with you that, that the notion of gender, which is effemineness or masculinity, can be different from biology in the sense that biology is just pure male or pure female, but to suggest that there is such a thing as an effeminate male is not to suggest that an effeminate male is now a woman. Transgenderism makes the argument that if you believe that you are a woman, you are therefore a woman. Or if you believe that you are a man, you are therefore a man. I disagree with this. There are objective measures as to whether you're a man or a woman. There are objective measures as to whether you're male or female. You're a, there, there's certainly a spectrum when, when, with regard to effeminateness versus masculinity. That's certainly true, but that does not change the underlying sexual dichotomy that is the basis for all human reproduction. Yeah, you can, you can answer. Um, right, so this dichotomy is a false dichotomy that isn't supported by any of the medical associations that I just named then off. Then let me None explain. None of the medical associations that I just named off would actually support the uh, idea that um, gender is biological. This is something that's completely untrue okay, within gender, every single like medical consensus. Uh, well then, I will just say that anyone who suggests that gender has no reference whatsoever to biology, it's not connected in any way to biology, is just full of shit. Because if, if, if the and, and the reason I, and, and the re, and the reason that I then say you, then you then you class it then you actually just disagree with medical consensus yes, within the I disagree, Western Yes, I disagree with the false medical consensus driven by politically driven quote unquote doctors. If any doctor denies to me that there is a dichotomy between male and female, a sexual dichotomy between male and female, they're ignorant and they are letting their politics get in the way of their science. Anybody who suggests to you that there is such a thing, for example, as a pregnant male is not a doctor, they are an activist. I'm very glad that none of these opinions are actually accepted in academia and haven't been for over 70 years. Sent this here on well, Twitter. Okay, so the notion that they haven't been accepted for over 70 years is a bizarre one considering they were accepted until about five minutes ago. And the basic idea that male and female do not exist runs counter to all mammalian biology, all of it, not just human. Are we to suggest that gender and, and sex are different in walruses? How does this work exactly? Like, uh, are they different in bears? Anytime you have a, anytime you have, all mammalian reproduction is rooted in the idea that there's a sexual dichotomy between male and female. To obscure that with all sorts of semantic word games about how you feel subjectively has no bearing on whether male and female are categories that exist. And if you're trying to define male and female with reference to any subjective category that cannot be identified by any metric whatsoever other than how you feel today, I challenge whether that is scientific or whether that is merely a self-perception that is being guided by a political agenda. I'm sorry, I could spend more time on this, but we have to get to the next question. I appreciate it. Hey, Ben Shabibo, good to see you. Hey, everybody here, good to see you guys too. I'm glad to be here. I got in on the standing line, so I'm really happy to be here. Um, do you know about the bill that Republicans are trying to pass to stop critical race theory being taught in college? Um, I'm aware that there is a bill. I haven't read the text of it, but go ahead. Okay, so in Florida, I think it's going to go... Oh, I look sick. Um, <laughs> so it's going to be 
decided, I guess, we're going to talk about it in, like, December. Um, yeah, in the new legislative session, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Go ahead. So, as a Republican, being pro-free speech, do you have anything to say against this? Like, we're really simply just outlawing certain words to be used in public spheres, such as education. Um, I feel like more Republicans should kind of see, see this as concerning. You know, you guys always quote uh, 18 or 1984, whatever. Um, you know, this is like an Orwellian move, isn't it? For so, they, so it depends on what level of education we're talking about. If we're talking about the idea that critical race theory can be taught as one of many theories on college campuses, I have no problem with it. Marxism is taught as one of many theories on college campuses. If the idea is that we're going to be teaching critical race theory, which is not taught as one of many theories, it's taught as a framework for understanding the world, and it is a lens through which we are to view history. This is something that the founders of critical race theory openly acknowledge. They suggest that critical race theory has a praxis component, meaning it's a practice component that is designed in order to indoctrinate kids in a particular type of thinking about how America's institutions work. Do I think that the taxpayers of the state of Florida have an obligation to subsidize the indoctrination of their children in that? No. And I think that public education, as an institution, is dedicated not merely to the idea that you send your kids to school and then the teachers dump whatever they want on your kids. I think the idea is that these the parents delegate their power to educate their children to the state via the public schools, and then they have the authority and should have the authority to determine what framework is being taught. And the anti-American framework of critical race theory, which is unrooted in actual history, ought not be taught in America's public schools. Um. Like, critical race theory is literally a footnote in my sociology class, and it's a framework if you want to take it in as a framework. You Listen, know? I learned critical race theory when I was at Harvard Law School, too, right? I mean, the, I, I, I... In fact, whenever you talk about critical race theory, you say the right things, you know what you're talking about, but because you're a Republican, it's the talking point to go against. No, they we are... I, I'm a pro-free speech American, so this deeply concerns me when there are words, exact words, that are being restricted in the public sphere. Well, that, that's why you I guys just distinguished... opened up by saying marketplace of ideas. So I'm a big marketplace I, right, of so ideas. Right, so I, I, again, I would distinguish between marketplace of ideas in the college realm and mar when, when presumably people are old enough to actually understand what they're talking about, have open and, and interesting debates about these topics, and when you're talking about 11-year-olds or 10-year-olds or when you're talking about reading Ibram X. Kendi, which is a really dumbed-down version of critical race theory for five-year-olds. Colleges, not for 11-year-olds. Well, then this I'll have, I'll, I'd be happy to look at the text of the bill and determine what I think about the bill. I do think that, that public schools, I'm, I'm not sure that public schools have an obligation to teach as practical critical race theory. Again, I think there are different ways that it's taught. So if we're talking about just in your sociology class, it's one of many theories about American history, and now we're going to talk about how it applies, I don't really have a problem with that being taught. If we're talking about critical race theory being taught as a framework to view America's institutions to the exclusion of other frameworks, I do have a problem with that. Thank you. I have gum in my mouth, sorry. Hello. Um, so earlier on in your lecture, you were saying that due process past the 14th Amendment has been equally distributed to all groups across America. No. I, said that, I, said, I, I didn't say that in practice it has. I said the concept of due process is dedicated to the proposition that people should be treated as individuals. Obviously, segregation and, and racism and criminal justice up until the Civil Rights Act would suggest that on a practical level, it was not equally distributed, obviously. Okay, so in idea, but in practice, it was, you agree that it was um, not equally distributed to all groups across America. Sure. Okay, so then wouldn't that, how is that in opposition to um, critical race theory that teaches that these institutions have been used to um, prosecute certain groups differently than others have been prosecuted? Because that's not what critical race theory teaches. What critical race theory teaches is that supposedly colorblind institutions like due process of law are cover for racism as, a, as an institution. Due process of law is a problem because it is not because it is a good concept, badly applied or improperly applied. It's because it is in and of itself a discriminatory concept. Right? This is what they say about capitalism also. Right? Free market economies are inherently discriminatory. They are covers for institutions of power. That's the critique. The critique is that due process of law, in and of itself, the idea 
of treating people individually ignores key components about human beings, namely how they are seen racially by other human beings, and thus due process of law is not enough to guarantee that people are treated equally or can be treated equally. I disagree. I think due process of law is an excellent guarantee, and straying away from that guarantee has been the problem with regard to due process of law, not the actual guarantee itself. Okay. <clears throat> Sorry, my voice is a bit gone. Um, so then would you agree not banning critical race theory in public, um, like in theory that, in the theory that they are covers, but would you be a proponent of having the education that these institutions have been used to attack other minority groups across America and that it has had historic um, scars that are still, um, re that um, we still see today. So I wouldn't say that the institutions have been used to abuse due pro I wouldn't say due process of law has been used to abuse minorities. I would say that people have refused to implement due process of law because they wanted to abuse minorities, of course. And of course you'd have to teach about that. I mean, that's the entire history of segregation and the subjugation of black Americans up to the Civil Rights Act, for sure. Of course. And, and they, this is why it's such a lie when people say that if you don't want to teach critical race theory, you don't want to teach history. I'm fine with teaching every ugly part of American history. What I'm not fine with is the idea that the foundational ideas of the United States of America, the notion that we are created equal before God with certain inalienable rights and that government was instituted in order to protect these rights, I disagree with the fundamental idea that these were a cover for power designed in order to subjugate black Americans. I think that's a lie and I think it's deleterious to teach that to kids. Okay, so um, I don't want to misinterpret your position, but it's your belief, tell me if I'm right or wrong about this, okay? Um, it's your belief that America is fundamentally a skillsocracy, as you call it, as, as opposed to a meritocracy, correct? Yes. Then how... <laughs> because I don't connect moral merit with, with intellect. People are born... Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. I get that, yeah. nice. Um, <laughs> that's good. Uh, the, um, my question is, how do you explain the fact that the vast majority of American inequality is caused by the people who you know, the neighborhoods you grew up in, the amount of wealth your parents have, and thousands and thousands and thousands of other, whether you believe that race is involved or not, but thousands of other non-skill-based factors um, that are integral to moving ahead in the American system. So I don't think that that's true primarily. What I think is that all of those things have an impact on the skills that manifest in the marketplace. No question. But what the market measures is, is at the point of the skills. It's not measure, if there's a skilled person who's coming from an impoverished background where there's a lot of single motherhood and crime, for example, and that person has high skills, that person is going to do fine. Okay, but the problem is that all of those things can contribute to a lack of skills. Right? This is part of my argument, and the only way to, to actually alleviate that problem is to change the cultural milieu that makes it very difficult for people to achieve a certain level of skills in particular communities. Single motherhood makes it very difficult, for example, for kids to grow up in an environment where they have a solid family home, where they're studying a lot at home, where education is, is of primary value as opposed to just getting through the day crime-free, for example, and without being victimized by neighbors, high crime areas, right? All of these things are things that we can alleviate, and, and I think that we should alleviate them. These are real problems to people fully developing their skills. The point that I'm making is that the system of economics is not punishing people for their upbringing, it's punishing them for lack of skills, which may in fact be an effect of their upbringing, right? But, th but that does not mean that primarily the skillsocracy is punishing people for their, for, for their environment or for their race. It is punishing them for the fact that when it comes time for them to go to the job market, they don't have the same skills as the person next to them. So the question becomes not, how do we get rid of the skillsocracy? The question becomes, how do we get rid of the obstacles to people who could be more skilled becoming more skilled? And that means creating cultural institutions that matter. It means creating communities. It means trying to ensure that people have a father and a mother in the home, trying to make sure that people can live in safe neighborhoods where there are thriving communities, where there are jobs available. Right? That, would, that would effectuate a better opportunity set to enter the skillsocracy. But what I see is people attacking the distribution of reward at the skills level as opposed to attacking the underlying problem, which creates a lot of the inequalities you're talking about. Yeah. I, I'd rather... Yeah. Oh, no, you're fine. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was wondering, you, so you believe that um, things like single motherhood, things like growing up in high crime areas are inherently cultural? 
rather than um, to do with any institutions or any inequalities uh, that are part of American society institutionally? No, I think that history has a long tail. But I think that the only way that you fix that is by changing the incentive structure for individuals right now. So I think that you can blame the, the, the amount of crime in a particular community on a long history of disinvestments in that community 50, 60 years ago. I don't think it's going to change a damn thing. And I don't think pouring money into the community is necessarily the solution. I think if you're looking at high crime levels, I think the best solution is you need more cops on the ground to stop the crime. This is what's going to allow people to invest in the area and provide more jobs. And I think that trying to spend all of your time... The question is, are we trying to... Are we trying to diagnose a problem that is solvable, or are we trying to just describe the history of the problem? If we want to describe the history of the problem, that's fine, but using that as a substitute for a practical solutions-based approach to problems is a political mistake. One is the study of historians, the other is the study of politicians and political actors that ought to actually be applied in real life. So when you have a solution like affirmative action or you have a solution like uh, benefiting people from lower income communities, and I know obviously there's a difference between affirmative action on the racial level and affirmative reaction on the economic level, you think that government policy should have no role in, uh, in alleviating those inequalities even though government policy purportedly in the past, even though I would argue currently, created those inequalities in the first place? I think that any time the government attempts to remedy past discrimination by the use of current discrimination, all they are doing is effectuating discrimination and undermining the skillsocracy that allows for positive externalities, yes. Hi, Ben. How are you? Doing okay. How are you? Great. Um, how come you claim to be 5'9", even though you're like 5'5"? Five five? I don't know. How tall are you? You're 5'9"? I'm actually 5'9". Okay, come over here. Let's see. I'll be honest, I planted. I'm waiting years to do that. Hi, how are you? Um, my question is regarding two very high-profile court cases going on right now, the uh, Ahmed Arbery trials and the Kyle Rittenhouse trials. And my question is, what do you believe would be the outcome of these trials and why? Okay, so I think that there's what will happen and what should happen. I'm not going to try and predict what will happen because you cannot predict what juries are going to do. Uh, what should happen, Rittenhouse should be acquitted. Uh, he clearly acted in self-defense. That doesn't mean that I would send my 17-year-old over to Kenosha, Wisconsin in order to protect property and, and provide medical aid to people, but it does mean that the shootings that he committed were in self-defense. The evidence is pretty much as clear as day on that one, uh, and uh, the prosecutor has no case and, frankly, is making a fool of himself. He looks like he got his law degree for turning in the tops of Cracker Jack boxes. Um, in the Arbery case, the, the, the main question in the Arbery case is going to come down to, legally speaking, whether the whether the McDaniels, who are the, the defendants in this particular case, whether they had the capacity under the citizen's arrest law of Georgia to arrest Arbery. So there was some testimony last week that a couple of weeks before they went after Arbery, they, were to, they went to this house that Arbery had been allegedly inside of, this, this construction site, and tools had been stolen from there and all this. They went there with a local cop, apparently, and the local cop was speaking to them about how there was somebody who looked exactly like Arbery who'd been inside stealing things. Right? And so what this does, it provides the predicate for the notion they have to, that, that if they get a call that somebody is stealing things and that person matches Arbery's description, it, and, and the cop in the tape says it's possible he's stealing things, it could be a misdemeanor, it could be a felony. Once it's a felony, you can effectuate a citizen's arrest. So the question is going to be whether that citizen's arrest was lawful or not, the attempted citizen's arrest. Because once you get down to the, the end of it, right, the end of it where they, they're roadblocking him and they're trying to keep him from running away and Arbery runs between the cars, now you essentially have a case of almost mutual self-defense, right? It's actually really a terrible case in which Arbery sees these guys chasing him in trucks. Why is he going to pull over, right? And so he tries to run, 
he goes for the gun, they shoot him. So from their perspective, they're trying to give a citizen's arrest, they have to shoot him in self-defense. From his perspective, he's trying to run away, and they're blocking him and trying to falsely imprison him, and so he's acting in self-defense. So the only way to solve that legal conundrum is whether they were, in fact, under the belief that they were attempting to arrest him, a citizen's arrest, and they had good cause. Like, uh, uh, it has to be by the uh, preponderance of the evidence, like 51%, 49% standard. If they had, prob if they had um, a, a 51 to 49% probability of the evidence that, that he was committing a felony and that they could arrest him, then they could be acquitted. So that's the legal issue. That's what it's going to come down to. Considering that citizen's arrest is a widely outdated law, do you consider that it should be reformed? Um, you know, it, it's... It's difficult to reform citizens' arrest because, again, there, there are just so many areas where the cops are not available. I mean, what I would like is to make it so that citizens' arrest is not something that anybody really wants to do because the cops are so available that you just call them. Right? And, and by the way, this is what happens in, in, in low-crime, high-income areas, frankly. There are a lot of cops available. There's a lot of security. You don't see a lot of people running around trying to effectuate citizens' arrests in those areas. You typically have somebody calling a police officer. Sorry, one last question is, do you believe that Rittenhouse traveled to Kenosha with the intent of stirring trouble or not? Um, I think that by the available evidence, he went there with the intent of providing medical aid and brought the gun because he thought the trouble was, might break out or could break out. I don't think that he went there to shoot anybody, if that's the question. And I think the prosecution's case that he went there to shoot somebody is undermined by pretty much every single fact on the ground, including his own behavior that night. Hi, Ben. How are you doing? Okay, how are you? I'm good. Um, so, in our country, we have a lot of billionaires. We have a lot of companies that are worth billions of dollars. Thank God. It's a great country. Uh, sure. <laughs> so, so, Tesla uses lithium mines in Africa where children are employed. Uh, they're paid very little amounts of money. They're starving. Uh, Nike uses children in Asia where they're working with textiles and they are injured frequently. These are all dangerous conditions. Uh, all these companies, all these billionaire billionaire companies, have these similar like problems at the bottom ring. Do you think that the Do you think that that's exploitation? Do you think that exploitation is a problem? And do you think that your idea of free market capitalism has an answer for exploitation? If so, so. So I think that every economic system has a problem of exploitation if it's not bound by certain levels of morality. Right? Socialism has a level of exploitation, too, which you see in the Soviet Union, for example. You can treat workers as chattel, and you can treat them as trash, and you can force them into doing jobs they don't want or gulag them. So any system of economics that, that relies on, on force is a form of exploitation. I would say that the problem that you see with regard to China is not per se free markets. It's the fact that the Chinese government is willing to allow its own citizens to be used as child labor. And the fact that there is no governance structure in Africa at all to protect children, if what you're saying about Tesla is true, I'm going to assume that it is. I don't know enough about the issue. Um, so assuming that that is the case, there's nothing in free market capitalism that prohibits people who are incapable of making decisions for themselves from being exploited. That's true, right? I mean, if, if you can find somebody who's, a, this is particularly true with child labor, children are not capable of consent. If children are incapable of consent, then free market conditions should not prevail, and there should be laws on the books that prevent companies from actually using that sorts of labor. Right? We've had child labor laws in the United States for quite a while, and I agree with those. Uh, so, but that's not to suggest that any other economic system wouldn't be similarly prone to exactly the same kinds of problem as long as you are saying that, that exploitation is simply a function of economic growth or even economic distribution, right? They're almost two separate issues. So one is an issue of morality. Immoral people can use any system in order to harm other people, and particularly children, and people who can't protect themselves. The case that socialism makes is that people who are fully capable of consent are also exploited, and that, I think, is a lie. Well, do you, do you think that... Um, I apologize. Oh, no worries. I, I just tripped up, but... Um, yeah, I'm sorry. That's okay. Um, I mean, I think that the, the, the broader point that I'm making is that when it comes to... Sorry, did you remember? So, yeah. So, yeah. would you be in favor of legislation here in the United States that prevents billionaire companies and multi-billion dollar companies from using exploitation around the world? Uh, depending on what we are defining as exploitation, sure. I mean, if we're talking about, like, forcing small children to make Nike shoes, absolutely. Child labor. Yes. Child labor, yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
And and by I'm the glad way, we're in agreement. And, and by and, and by I'm the way, glad we're in agreement. Yeah, and, and 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 by the way, I would agree with with a, a United States policy of tariffing any company abroad that that also uses similar levels of labor. Because the big problem is that the reason companies in the United States presumably do that sort of stuff is in order to compete with companies abroad that are using exactly that sort of labor. So punishing those companies abroad from doing that would also be a way of preventing them from entering American markets and undercutting companies that are now undergoing the higher labor cost of having to not use small children to make shoes. Hello, I just wanted to ask, so I wanted to bring up the fact that you talked about individuals and everything, and I wanted to bring up a few examples, like, for example, like COVID and like, say, like the 2008 financial collapse and even like the 1994 crime bill and things like that. Those have definitely effects on big groups and especially like the black community and everything. Like after the 2008 uh, financial collapse, not many people got, you know, like I wouldn't say accused, but convicted, for example, not many people on Wall Street, the individuals who did profit a lot from those things. But millions of people were kicked out of their homes and everything. And you talk about like us, things like these being, or America being, you know, based on individuals and individuals wanting to achieve different things. But in reality, a lot of like people are affected by their societal factors, their, you know, their environment and everything. So I want to get your answer on that and like how these negative effects, you know, affect the majority of people. But a pos the positives, the money gains, you know, the Wall Street things. Not many of the working class people in Tallahassee, for example, feel that, you know, not many people in Tallahassee felt the uh, after COVID or during COVID, you know, the stock market jumps, the average employer just yep. saw a bunch of just empty, you know, employment you know, options and low wages and everything still and the same old, same old. So, well, I mean, your... OK, so I think that. The fundamental idea with regard to, it's almost two separate questions, and so I'm going to take them one at a time. The reason I'm separating the questions is because when it comes to corporate bailouts, for example, I'm sure you and I agree. I don't think that any of those corporations should have been bailed out. I think that if you engage in the moral hazard of wrecking your own company, I don't see why I'm supposed to pay for that or you're supposed to pay for that. In a free market system, you're supposed to bear the consequences of the risks that you take. I think that's true across the board. And I think that whether you're a big rich guy on Wall Street and you lose your entire company or whether you're a guy who took out a loan that you couldn't afford on your house, if you take out too much, that is, as I am constantly for saying, a you problem. If you take a risk and then you bear the consequence of that risk, that's no one's fault but your own. And anybody who comes in to bail you out from that, particularly if you're talking about with like billions of dollars in order to prop up a particular lifestyle, that's a huge mistake and it's a huge problem and I totally agree with that. And um, for example, with that, like, you know, we in America, we do bail these people out. You know, our capitalist system does not. You that's know, not capitalism. That's cronyism. It definitely. Yeah. People say that. But no, but it's true. It's it's no, but it's we, we do bail these people out. And right. I'm just saying that that's not capitalism. That's actually closer to corporatism, which is the government being in control of the economy, essentially. I mean, it was the where, where is, who's bailing them out? I mean, are they bailing them out? The government is bailing. Yeah, them out. definitely the government. And for example, we don't get these similar bailouts for regular people like for example joe biden was you know promoting just two thousand dollars you know we're fighting for scraps i want to understand like where does that come from like why are we so you know willing to give well, i mean the united states does spend literally trillions of dollars on social welfare programs the notion the united states has no social safety net at all is not true the united states spends per citizen tens of thousands of dollars on on social welfare benefits ranging from Medicaid to food stamps to unemployment insurance to, to a wide variety of programs. The notion that we're wildly out of line with Europe is just not borne out by the statistical facts, actually. It's, it's kind of a, an American myth that we tell ourselves that we don't spend any money on this sort of stuff. It's not true. Since the beginning of the war on poverty, we spent something like $22 trillion on various social programs, and essentially the same number of people live underneath the poverty line. Okay, and then a last question. So we have this uh, infrastructure bill going through, and you see people like Joe Manchin, you know, arguing over, you know, what is it, $5 billion in regards to it, or just, you know, the, just a little price difference, for example. Over the past 20 years, we've been fighting wars in Afghanistan, and we spent trillions and billions of dollars. And you have these politicians saying that these infrastructure bills that will help us on our domestic front, these small price changes are going to have dramatic effects on, you know, our future and our children. And that's why they, you know, the, the Republican Party, they definitely, you know, go for austerity and those, you know, factors. So, so the, the wars, to take an example, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan were expensive. They cost 
grand total, somewhere between three and four trillion dollars. Last I checked, the United States spends about four trillion dollars in the budget every single year, and we spend about seven trillion dollars last year. That's every year, right? Yeah, I just want to know what that, that what that means for the future of our children. If we're willing to spend that much on war, like what does that mean in regards to? You know, these infrastructure bills, us fighting over these small well, I mean, amounts in well, we're, comparison to war. We're not really fighting over small amounts. These are very large amounts of money. The entire American budget 40 years ago was not nearly as much as one of these infrastructure bills. I mean, 20 years ago it wasn't. And you just go back and look at the budgeting. So we're spending unsustainable amounts of money on nearly everything in American life to, to point out defense spending as opposed to what really constitutes the vast bulk of our budget, which is everything else. Defense spending as a percentage of the American budget is something like 20%, 25% of the American budget. I think it was even that high. That, that is not the chief driver of systemic spending problems in the United States. It's, these, it's, it's massive mandatory spending programs. I, I have to ask you a question. Were you the guy before who I saw a picture of holding uh, the uh, very creative flag? Of, uh, yes, it was. Yes, it was. Outside. Yeah, dude, I, I just, I got to ask you, like, I, Lenin and Stalin? Really? Yeah, definitely Lenin and Stalin. It's just Lenin fact, and Stalin? Uh, Stalin really? definitely due to World War II, you know, I mean... And we're Soviet... talking about exploitation of people? I mean, Stalin... Like, I mean, we, killed... we do a lot of that in America, too. I live, in Tallahassee, there's a lot of exploitation. I used to work at a lot of places, and there's a lot of poor were you, people. Were you gulags, though? Were you like, were, were, we have were you prisons like in America, too. Were you, were we you, have, were you one you know, of the, like, 30 targeted. million people murdered by Stalin? Like, really, I, really, if you're going to go Marxist, then please find a better Marxist to emulate than, than Lenin or Stalin, mass murderers. Soviet Union, the Soviet Union during World War II saved the world. I would say that. Uh, if it had not been for Stalin, World War II never would have started because it was the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact that allowed the Nazi Germans to believe that they could invade Eastern Europe. This will be the last question that Mr. Shapiro takes for the evening. That's Sorry, a lot of guys, pressure. <laughs> That's a lot of pressure. Um, <laughs> my name is Andrew, um, and uh, I, used to, I was introduced to you by the Michael Knowles book, uh, Reasons to Vote for Democrats. Your quote that said thorough at the top, and it was a blank book. Um, I don't know if anyone's familiar with that book. Um, but um, I... Uh, my question is um, about uh, it's like in the, in the way that like the 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 things that you're saying about um, certain you know things being done with hard work, things being done with intellect, um, as kind of like a you know a slippery slope to to more right like you know racist things or like white supremacist things. Um, the question is like a FSU specific question about. Um, what your thoughts are about the difference between canceling someone for what they believe and accountability in a position where they should have accountability, um, specifically Jack Denton, who is a, was an FSU, I believe, Senate um, person. But he was basically, he had, um, sorry, <laughs> I should be more knowledgeable about this, but, um, and I really don't want to be the, the college student destroyed by Ben Shapiro. Um, <laughs> But um, but the question is basically he was a he was an FSU student that um, had anti BLM anti uh, transgender uh, comments in um, a Catholic group that he had the mm -hmm. Facebook group or something. If someone wants to correct me on that, they can. But a group me gotcha different application. Okay. Um, but the question is basically, uh, what are your thoughts on that? You know. I mean, so, so my, my basic view of cancel culture, I won't comment on a specific case because I really don't know the facts of the case, um, but the, my, my general thoughts on, on cancel culture versus what they call accountability culture is you get to hold somebody accountable for a thing that they do in the space where they do it. What I mean by that is I speak on politics. If I say something bad about politics, you cannot listen to my show. You can say that, that I'm a bad man and you, should, and you can come after me and you can tell people not to listen to me and all of that. If you go after my advertisers who are advertising on a wide variety of programs, then that is an attempt to cancel as opposed to an attempt to, to hold accountable because the person that you're actually attempting to hold accountable is not me. You're attempting to go after advertisers who have had nothing to say about any of the... That my advertisers, I assume, disagree with a lot of what I say. Right? Just because they advertise on the program does not mean that they approve of everything I say any more than they agree with everything on MSNBC if they advertise on both of us. Um, the, this, this holds true across, 
I would say industries. So you see, you'll see a plumber, and a plumber has some sort of bad thing on a Facebook page. And the idea is that you can no longer use this plumber because of what was on their Facebook page that they were talking about politics. That seems very silly to me. If you can unclog my toilet, I'll use you as the plumber. These two things have nothing whatsoever to do with each other. If it impacts your job performance, that's accountability culture. If it impacts not your job performance, it just impacts sort of your public perception, that seems a lot more like cancel culture to me. As a member of student government, do you think that he should be held accountable to those beliefs? I mean, it depends who's holding him accountable. In other words, was he, uh, you'll have to tell me the story. Did they, was he dumped by the school from his position in the student senate, or did people just not elect him in the future? Yeah, it was a vote of no confidence from the um, student government. I mean, I, I can say whether I disagree or agree with that, but I can also say that if a student government votes that they don't want somebody else in student government because of something that they've said politically, then I, I can think that they are, are being censorious. I'm not sure that that counts as formal cancel culture in the sense that they're being canceled for something that, that is outside the purview of which they're, they're normally speaking. Uh, but I can still think that the people who are doing it are jackasses. I don't know what he said. So both of those things can be true at once. Sometimes accountability culture, as it's called, can also be misused. It's not like a hard divide between accountability culture is good and cancel culture is universally bad. Right? I, I could probably think of hypothetical scenarios where that's not true. Well, thank you guys so much. I really appreciate the time. It's great to see you.